Hello and welcome to the DNA for Africa podcast series. My name is Vanessa Lynch and today we are talking about my favorite subject, DNA databases. I get many questions around the different types of databases that exist that store DNA profiles and I thought today would be a good opportunity to try and differentiate and um, have an understanding of, of why we have different types of DNA databases, how they regulated the types of information that are held in a DNA database and perhaps look at a couple of cases which shows how powerful a DNA database is when used in conjunction with forensic DNA profiling. Let's start with a DNA database. What is the difference between a a DNA database and a forensic DNA database. And, and, I, and I make that differentiation because there may exist many types of DNA databases throughout the world. Genealogy databases where people voluntarily put their DNA onto a database to find out about their ancestry. There may be DNA databases held by um, medical fraternities where they're doing specific research into medical preconditions and diseases. But a forensic DNA database is very different. It's an anonymous database in as much as the information held there is really just a unique identifier. Does that forensic DNA profile on the database match that of the person who is a potential suspect in a case? And a forensic DNA profile differs to a DNA profile in as much as it only looks at Certain regions of your DNA profile in the non-coded area, which means it doesn't code for any information. We don't know anything about that particular person. There's no physical, there's no medical, there's no behavioral characteristics that can be read from the non-coded region of your DNA. And it also has a lot of variations, so it's very useful for criminal investigations because it is a, a great way to differentiate between individuals in order to ensure that that is a unique DNA profile that can be related to a suspect. So if we understand that a forensic DNA profile, um, which is held on a DNA database by the state, um, is utilized for identification purposes, Let's talk about the different types of forensic DNA databases that exist. The two I'd like to first um, introduce you to is a criminal intelligence database and a humanitarian database. So a, a criminal intelligence database is exactly as the word describes it. It's used for criminal intelligence to identify suspects and identify serial offenders. The purpose of a criminal intelligence database is to match a DNA profile that has been found on a crime scene to that of a person who is already existing on the database, such as a convicted offender or an arrestee. A comparative search, which is conducted on a criminal intelligence database, simply looks for identical DNA profiles. As an example, we have a case called the McKee case, which is fairly um, well known in South Africa, where a person was convicted of a common assault, this man, McKee. And as a result of our laws, which mandate that criminal offenders or convicted offenders need to have their DNA sample taken and the profile added to the convicted offender index in our criminal intelligence database, they loaded that DNA profile onto the database and a comparative search was automatically conducted against all other DNA profiles on the DNA database. 
On the crime scene index, they load a DNA profile from every crime scene, even if they don't have a suspect. So every um, person, for instance, who has survived a rape or a, a, a profile that's been taken from a crime scene is loaded onto that, albeit they don't know who it belongs to, it still sits on that crime scene index looking for a partner, so to speak, looking for a known person. So this man, McKee, whose profile was entered onto the DNA database as a convicted offender, they conducted a comparative search and it linked to 30 unsolved rape cases. 30 of those crime scene profiles taken from 30 different rapes where they didn't have a suspect were immediately linked to this one particular person. Not only does that show you the power of a DNA database and how important it is to have a DNA database when you're using criminal uh, DNA profiling, if we didn't have a database, they would never have known that that person was linked to the other rapes because they had remained unsolved for a long period of time. But it also shows you that DNA laws are very important. And without our DNA laws that mandated that a convicted offender must um, have a DNA sample taken and that profile linked, um, loaded onto the DNA database, then we would never have been able to use it to its full advantage. So most countries have two indices in their DNA databases, their criminal intelligence database, and I'm just talking about those databases now. They have a crime scene index, which is unknown profiles, and every crime scene, every, every DNA profile taken from a crime scene is entered onto that index. And then they have a reference database, which could be both arrestees and convicted offenders, or just convicted offenders. And as soon as that profile is loaded onto the DNA database, it's automatically um, a comparative search is conducted to see if it links to any other cold cases or any other case um, unsolved cases on the DNA database. If you don't have a database, the way that they're using it is on a case-by-case -case basis, which means that somebody is arrested for a suspected crime, for instance, a rape, and they compare that DNA profile to the DNA profile that is taken from the rape survivor. If that matches that person, they can use that evidence to convict that person for the rape based on the match between the two profiles. It just shows you that a DNA database, that same profile, if just taken out of a case-by-case -case context, could actually link that particular person to more than just that rape. It could, as of the example I've just given you, link them to 30 rapes, in which case their entire case is going to change, and that person may not just be convicted of, a, uh, a, of one rape, but actually a serial offender is going to be put away, as McKee was, for several life sentences. So how does this differentiate to what I've spoken to um, you about as a humanitarian DNA database? And, and I did mention that sometimes they don't, countries don't differentiate between the two, they just have different indices, which have different search parameters. So in South Africa, we have a convicted offender um, an index on our DNA database. We have a crime scene index on our DNA database, as well as an arrestee um, index. And as the name suggests, that indicates which types of profiles come from which category of persons. We also have a missing persons and unidentified human remains index. And this is essentially your humanitarian database because when you have human remains that are unidentified, if you take a DNA um, sample from that particular um, uh, person and you enter that profile onto the database, you hope that at some point it's linked to either 
somebody's reference sample from a missing person or otherwise um, a family member who may have submitted their sample and to, to try and find a family member. And, and that's how it's linked to trying to identify that particular person. So let's say somebody goes missing, the family member bring in a, an, a personal item, a brush, a toothbrush. They take a DNA sample from that toothbrush. They add it onto that index as a missing person. They hope that at some point they'll be able to either find that person alive, which is the best case scenario, in which case they might use the database, for instance, if it's a trafficked person whose identification has been taken away and they've got no way of showing who they are, if they can submit a sample, they can link it and say that is categorically the same person. Alternatively, if a missing person turns up, unfortunately dead, they can take a sample and link it to the missing person's profile on the database. So when we talk about a humanitarian purpose, we talk about being able to utilize it for the identification and repatriation of missing persons. The reason the searching is also different is that often they use what's called a familial search. Now, a comparative search I explained is when you look for identical DNA profiles. So if a person went missing and you were able to get a reference profile from their toothbrush, which is their own DNA, and it's linked to uh, human remains, that will be an exact match. If you've only got a family's members, a family member's DNA profile, they do what's called a familial search and they look for similar alleles or similar markers in their DNA profile to see whether you have a relationship or a kinship to that particular person. So you're not looking for an exact match, you're looking for somebody who might be related to that particular person. And, I, and I'll give you an example. If a, a mother and a father submit their DNA sample to the Unidentified Human Remains and Missing Persons Index, if they do find a missing um, a, a, a human body, if they do a familial search and it comes up that that DNA profile from the body or the human remains, has very similar um, markers in it to the parents, they can do a kinship analysis to determine whether that, in fact, is that person's child. And a kinship analysis basically looks for, if you think about your mother and the fa your father, you get half your DNA from your mother and half your DNA from your father. So you are going to have at least one of those markers in that DNA profile from, uh, from both your mother and your father. And that's how they are able to positively identify a person through their relatives if they are able to do a familial search. We don't do familial searches on other indices because it is quite controversial, as you can imagine. If you were to conduct a familial search across the entire DNA database, what could happen is that you could start picking up um, familial relationships that either the family weren't aware of, um, and this, as you can imagine, can, can generate its own concerns. And, and this is why a number of countries are separating the humanitarian or the unidentified human remains index from and missing persons index from the main DNA database, because they want families to come forward and submit their DNA in order to try and match it to missing persons or human remains. But a family won't come forward if there's a possibility that their forensic DNA profile will be searched against all other indices. If, for instance, the father may, might have committed a crime and they 
put that DNA profile on the DNA database, in South African law, they are entitled to search that, do a comparative search against the crime scene index and all other indices. So you could, in fact, um, have somebody coming forward as a fam family member trying to identify their, their loved one, and in fact, they get um, identified as a potential suspect in an unsolved case. And obviously, there's an advantage to that, but there's a disadvantage in that it prevents people from coming forward, which is why they want to separate the two and do different searches. So hopefully that gives you a better understanding of the two different types of databases, their different purposes, and the different searches that are um, conducted on the various databases and the purposes of those searches. Um, familial searching also is quite controversial in that sometimes um, countries use it when they have no other leads. And there was a case in England, for instance, where a truck driver went under a bridge and somebody threw a brick um, and it went through the window and it killed the truck driver. In fact, the brick didn't kill the truck driver. He died of a heart attack as a result of the fright um, of, of having the brick thrown at him. And on the brick, they actually found a, a trace of blood, which didn't belong to the truck driver. And they suspected it actually belonged to the person who threw the brick over the bridge. So what they did, they profiled that and they put that forensic DNA profile into the database. They did a search and it didn't match anybody on the database. They then did a familial search to see was there any other person in that database that may be related to this particular person. And they did in fact find somebody who could be a relative. And this was actually not the person they were looking for, but they felt that this family member could at least lead them to the potential suspect. They went and they interviewed this person. They asked them if, if they had another son because it was a male DNA profile. And he led them to, I think he had a couple of sons, and one of those sons, they took a sample from him and his DNA matched that on the brick. So the controversy around that is that family members then become potential informants on their on their own family, which raises ethical questions. Um, but supporters of this type of searching also say that if you do the crime, you do the time. It doesn't matter how, how you identify that perpetrator. But it's not something that's um, done by many countries, and it's also mostly done as a last resort when there are no other leads, specifically to very violent cases, where they use familial searching um, to try and identify the potential uh, perpetrator. Then there's one other database that I just want to um, refer you to, and, and this is slightly more scientific and technical, and that's called an allele frequency database. And these are very important databases in any criminal justice system, and I'll explain to you why. When we talk about allele frequencies, we talk about the markers. When I speak about the markers in a non-coded region of a DNA, we're talking about um, areas in your forensic DNA profile that have half the DNA from your mother and half the DNA from your father, and they're represented in numbers. And let's say the frequency of the combination of those numbers in a population um, are determined by comparing it to the population database, which contains these allele frequencies. And some countries don't have an allele frequency database um, against which they can compare the frequency of those particular alleles in a population. South Africa do have it. And um, it's a very important aspect of reporting the random match probabilities or the likelihood ratios of a particular profile matching that um, of the crime scene profile to the particular suspect. 
it's a it's a technical discussion and we don't need to get into it into um, in this podcast but if anyone does want to know more about that we can certainly bring it up in the future um, or just read up population databases um, or frequency databases this mustn't be confused with yet another type of database which I'm often asked about and and that is a a global database or a, or a population DNA database where all citizens in a particular state are represented on a DNA database. There is no country in the world that has a population database that we know of, or certainly no laws that represent this. Um, there was a country in the Middle East that tried to do this at one stage and, and, they, and they dropped the idea. For a number of reasons, a population database is, is not necessary. Um, one is essentially that we're looking for the criminal population on a DNA database when we're using it in forensic DNA profiling and when we're using it in forensic science. We're trying to identify the criminal population who are the offenders. The majority of any population is in fact innocent and do not commit crime and therefore it's a, a huge burden on resources and financial resources in a particular country if they had to now start sampling every person from birth. We know in South Africa, for instance, our DNA backlog of our suspected criminal population was already well over 200,000 cases. Can you imagine if we add 58, or I'm not quite sure the, the population size, 58 million DNA samples to that burden, the cost, the resources that it would take to profile that number of people. And the size of the database would actually be overburdened by unnecessary entries. So... That's the practical side of it. From a constitutional perspective, our DNA laws are very strict in respect of the retention framework on our DNA database. And that is only a convicted offender's DNA profile may remain on the DNA database indefinitely. If a person is arrested and not subsequently convicted, for instance, their DNA profile will be removed from the DNA database. Um, and this is in the interests of ensuring that an innocent person's DNA profile does not remain on the database. This is grounded in, in our constitutional laws because from a privacy perspective, um, a person's private information does not need to be held by the state um, unnecessarily. And the only reason that our DNA laws were finally promulgated is that this retention framework, which I have just indicated exists in South Africa, meant that, that this in fact um, does occur that no innocent person's DNA profile is held by the state unnecessarily and that only a convicted of offender's profile is held by the state. So you can imagine a population database where the limitation of a person who hasn't even been arrested um, is now potentially being infringed by virtue of their profile being held on a DNA database. So hopefully that gives you a understanding of the various databases, um, why we have them, what their purposes and functions are, and um, why a population database, although in theory many people think is a good idea, actually is not a great idea right now in South Africa, nor do I think it will ever be. Obviously your personal opinions are welcomed and I look forward to further discussions and please follow us and on Twitter. Our handle is at DNA Africa and look forward to discussing further topics on forensic DNA profiling and the fascinating world of forensic science in the future. This is Vanessa Lynch at DNA for Africa. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.